0: Hi folks, welcome to the new episode of the Faultline Social Podcast. Today we've had Sam Lambeth with us, we've talked about his history in music, how he started, the bands that he's been in, uh, the scene locally, but also now him as a new solo artist. Um, he's got an upcoming EP, and we've mentioned about COVID, lockdown, and what it's going to be like coming back touring. So hopefully, enjoy, and catch us on the next one.
1: Thanks everyone. I, um Like I say... I- I first heard of it when when Jack was on a few weeks ago and re- really enjoyed listening. And I listened to Grey Waves as well. I thought that was really good. So I thought, you know, it, it'd be worth me dropping a message in the inbox and seeing if I could get myself one.
0: Yeah, man, that, I mean, that's what we're all about. Obviously, we're we kind of, we're obviously local to the Midlands anyway. Um,
1: I could tell uh, when, I, when I listened.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but it's one of those where, you know, anybody that we can sort of help out, even our minimal level of exposure, anything makes a difference, doesn't it? Um,
1: oh, God, yeah, 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 definitely. And it, 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 we need more, I always say we need more of these kind of things, really, you know, um, with podcasts being so prominent as well, you know, it's uh, it's really great to have the opportunity to come and can speak on them.
0: I mean, for us, at least it's giving, you know, it's, at the very least it's giving people something to do with lockdown, at least that's, you know, we've got a more captive audience now than we probably would have normally.
1: Yeah, hopefully it will continue. You never know. I mean, a lot of us hopefully will be able to remote work for the foreseeable future as well. So I'm sure there'll still be people listening, hopefully.
0: So, so what, what what was it that got you started then? So take us all the way back to the start. What got you into music in the first place?
1: The top 40, definitely. The, U- the UK top 40. Now, I was seriously obsessed with it. Probably probably worryingly so I mean I was like 12 or 13 I should have really been out kicking a football every night and um I know playing kiss chase with 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 girls but uh but believe me my mates didn't want me to play football because I was rubbish and the girls definitely didn't want me to play kiss chase with them so the only other alternative was listening to the radio and uh, yeah every Sunday at four o'clock I'd be there in front of the radio and I'd write down the top 40 so I'd have a little notebook and every week I'd put the what position the song was and what position it was the previous week or if it was a new entry. So I was obsessed. I mean, I remember one time I was at one of my friend's birthday parties, maybe it was his 10th birthday, and I was nervous because it was about three o'clock. You know, I was starting to get the shakes because I was like, I shouldn't be here, I should be at home by the radio. And I think I actually did leave about quarter to four so I could uh, get back home and listen. So that's where it started, kind of this obsession with with music and it's it's a healthy obsession i think but it's an obsession nonetheless and i think
0: interested in a lot worse definitely
1: oh definitely yeah definitely um i I had a very shielded (laughs) upbringing it was the only advice was radio (laughs) one but it but i think in terms of um the music that i play now and my influences it probably started again with the radio but i used to um it was definitely through my family. So my granddad was a big fan of of bands like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, um, the Eagles, and one of my uh, most uh, vivid memories from from growing up was that I used to be in his car and he'd have the be- uh, the Beatles and the Eagles on, and and, it, it, and artists that preceded them as well. So like the Everly Brothers, um, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, those kind of people, um, and also when I growing up in a in the area of kind of Britpop at home so my mom would have a lot of um suede blur oasis ocean color scene so I was very much I very much grew up in kind of a, a a musical family and I think those kind of artists were the original kind of influences on me and when I was about um 13 or 14 I really got into rock music myself I think before that obviously I was into it because it was on, you know, so my granddad would play it at home or in the car, same with my mom. And my brother was five years older than me as well, so he was kind of tentatively getting into it too. But when I was about 13, 12, 13 maybe, that's when I consciously began to really enjoy it for myself and began to seek out different musicians and, and bands. And also when I first harboured ambitions to play guitar, and i bought a guitar and i remember it was my 13th birthday i think and i decided to buy an electric guitar before that i had an acoustic guitar from argos and you, so you can imagine i just never played it because it it was it was basically a form of torture playing that guitar because the strings were so tough it was like cheese graters for strings basically so i never pursued it and i remember i got my birthday money got quite a bit of birthday money because the new one did a guitar and um I think they expected me to buy one of those cheap sets, again, from Argos, you know, where you have the guitar, the amp and plectrums and leads and all that stuff in one package. Um, but I actually bought this £250 guitar um, from a shop in, uh, I don't know if you know Mary Hill in Dudley. Yes, yeah, I know uh, Mary Hill. Yeah, there was a guitar shop there for a brief time, well, a music shop. And I went there and bought an electric guitar for 250 quid spent all my birthday money on it, so I had no money left to buy an amp or leads or plectrums or anything, so I just had this electric guitar. Um, but I thought, geez, I've just spent all that money. I'm actually going to have to buckle down and, and, and learn now. And it kind of ties back in my granddad, interestingly, because he'd always wanted to play guitar, but for one reason or another, he'd never pursued it. And then when I decided to start learning, uh, a guy that my granddad worked with um, taught guitar, Outside of work, and um, so my granddad said to him, "Oh, my grandson Sam, he wants to learn guitar. Will you teach him?" And he said, "Yeah, of course." And he says, "Why don't you start learning as well?" And he was like, "No, I, you know, I'm I'm 60 now. I don't I don't really want to do it. You know, I'm too old and all. You know, all that stuff." We said, "No, learn. You should do it as well." So, it, it, me and my granddad then started having lessons with this guy. So it's quite strange in a way because obviously I was like 13, 14, and at that point I was into bands like Franz Ferdinand, Block Party, that whole second coming of British indie rock bands. Yeah. My granddad was obviously into stuff like Buddy Holly and Everly Brothers and stuff like that. But we had lessons together for the first um, kind of 18 months, two years of the time I was playing guitar. So, yeah, that's kind of a bit of a, a background into how I first got into it, I would say.
0: Well, that's amazing that you managed. So somebody who was probably one of your earliest influences in terms of exposing you to like the stones and the Beatles actually ended up learning with you as well, which is great.
1: Yeah, we did gigs together. Um, not proper gigs. Um, and we did gigs like at home, <laughs> Christmas time, New Year's Eve. That was, uh, we'd play a short set, um, for the fa- for the, the extended family. I don't know if they wanted us to or not, but we, we did it anyway. We did a gig one time at the guitar teacher. The guitar teacher did like a big 60th bash at his house and he had a stage and everything and he played and uh, me and my granddad went on stage with him and played uh, Apache by The Shadows. Um, so that was kind of my first gig in a way when I was a okay.
0: classic, It's a classic. Um... Yeah,
1: I, I had to do the lead as well. So I was I was really nervous. So I was playing the Hank Marvin parts. But,
0: um, but yeah, it's it, was, it, was, it was great. When did you know then that so when did it change from being something that you were like you say, doing with your granddad learning? When did it suddenly start to bleed in that you were like, right, I wanna do this. I wanna actually go out and do this properly?
1: I think it was always there deep down. There was always that desire to do more than just play covers and, and play at home. Because I think when you start learning guitar, you just the possibilities are endless, aren't they? Um and um you're not just thinking about oh, learning the next song you're thinking long term you're thinking oh in a few months I can get a band together I can go and gig um so yeah I think I was always invested in in taking it to that next level and 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 trying to get a band off the ground Uh, I think for me it was probably a couple of years later when I started to write songs for myself I kind of dabbled a little bit with chord structures here and there but there was nothing set in stone I hadn't written anything um i hadn't written like a proper song at that point i think i was probably about 15 or 16 when i wrote my first song and for me it, again it was kind of my own it, it, i had to i i it was kind of me getting into bands again um so it kind of come off the back of my own discoveries if you know what i mean so um when i was playing guitar with my granddad and learning we did a lot of old older stuff like johnny cash and every brothers and things like that um but i wasn't too much into it really uh, i appreciate it but i wasn't too much into it so it wasn't really influencing me he wasn't making me think i oh, want to go and write a song um it was more going out and um listening to um bands that i would discover so a, bi- a big one for me was was weirdly a band called the Lemonheads. i don't know if you know them
0: yeah um yeah.
1: I I got into them, um, particularly like the It's a Shame About Ray album and just the chord structures that he used, the style of it, the kind of the melodies that really influenced me. And um, I started writing songs kind of influenced by that, really. And also I got into Elvis Costello was one of the first kind of big discoveries for myself. Um, it was someone that none of my family had really listened to, but I knew he had a big body of work. And um, I thought, I'm going to try and listen to some of his work and see what it's like. And he was a big influence on me as well.
0: You've gone back to certain artists that you've gone and discovered yourself, but um, say like Elvis Costello, like you mentioned, but who else did you go back to and find?
1: Yeah, so Paul Simon was definitely one. Again, I think I was drawn to musicians that had kind of a diverse back catalogue. Like for me, a great band is one that, takes risks and evolves and changes their sound, but still retains what made them endearing in the first place. So obviously the Beatles is a good example, Radiohead, um, Arcade Fire, um, and then obviously solo artists like Elvis Elvis Costello and and Paul Simon and Beck as well. Um, I was really drawn to musicians like that, that kind of had a melodic kind of spirit running through their songs but with each album, they challenged themselves and they uh, and they explored different kind of genres and different sounds. Um, so I was really drawn to people like that. And it was something that I really wanted to emulate myself. I wanted to kind of be adventurous and ambitious musically. And it, that hasn't really happened yet, but I, <laughs> I'm going to try and work on it.
0: <laughs> so how did it feel? When Was it always going to be an aim to go and sort of start off a band? Because that's kind of what you alluded to when we mentioned it just briefly. Um, did you never think to start off solo to begin with? No, I didn't because I
1: I wish I had it done looking back. Um, I think for me, I just didn't really have the confidence in myself. Um, I think I didn't have the the self-esteem to, to to think I could pull it off. I think a band is a good... You know, a band name is a bit of a barrier sometimes to hide behind. You know, it's it's like a safety net. It's something to hide behind. You know, announcing the gig of Sam Lambeth a few years ago would have been unfathomable for me because I would have thought no one would, would want to go and see Sam Lambeth. It sounds boring, you know, but a, a band name, there's a certain exoticism to it, isn't there? There's, um, there's something about it. There's a magic behind it. um, So, uh, yeah, I think back then I would have liked to have gone solo, definitely. I I would have liked that, but I think I just didn't have the confidence to think I could pull it off. I didn't think I'd have the confidence to be able to proudly, you know, um, have my name above the shop, as it were. I didn't think I'd be able to get band members. You know, I didn't think I'd be able to get people to join. I didn't think I'd get much of an audience. But I think other than that as well, I think I was... 16, 17, when I formed, formed my first band. And yeah, it's one of the rites of passages, really. You know, you want to play gigs, but you you want to be in a band. You know, you want that camaraderie, you want that mentality. So I think there's a bit of both, really. I wasn't reluctant to be in a band at all. Um, but at the same time, I did consider going solo, for sure.
0: So walk us through it then. So how did, how did your first band come together?
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't even form it, oddly. Um, basically, I knew some guys at school. Um, Dan Lacey was the uh, other guitarist and singer, a fantastic guitarist, fantastic piano player, fantastic drummer. The perfect band of honestly would be would have been four versions of him because he, he was fantastic at every instrument and. Um, Jay Wiley was on the bass. He was a younger lad, and and he looked a lot younger. So he was fifteen, I think, but he looked about ten, which caused us a lot of problems at first. When we were trying to get gigs, because they'd take one look at him and go, "I'm gone. You guys definitely ain't 18 Yeah. Um, and the drummer, the drummer was called Chisel. Um, no one knows why, but that was his that was his nickname, and it just stuck. Um, but um, I knew these guys um, at school, um, and there was a Christmas concert coming up at the school you know, as cliched as that is. And um, Dan suggested maybe we do a gig for it, play a couple of covers just for a laugh. And I said, okay, what the hell? I mean, I wasn't particularly c- that committed about it and I certainly didn't think it would spawn a band or gigs or original songs or anything. I just thought it was going to be a one-off performance and just a bit of a laugh. I didn't really go into it that committed, if truth be told, you know. I didn't go into it how I'd go into a full band where I'd think, right, let's write songs, let's book the gigs, you know what I mean? I was, I was fairly... I took a backseat approach to it and just kind of let Dan orchestrate it. And for one reason or another, we didn't end up doing the gig. I don't know what happened, but I always remember I went to New York um, the following February and Dan messaged me and said, oh, the Monobloggers have now got MySpace, which tells you what year it was because of MySpace. And I said, well, I said, what's the Monobloggers? I said, I don't even know what you're on about here. He said, our band. I said, oh, okay, this is a thing, is it? I said, this is actually like a band. He says, yeah, yeah. Um so, yeah, that christened, that was the day kind of the Monobloggers was born. Um, and we started rehearsing in Chisels Attic every Saturday. And, um, yeah, I think I, I took, I bought one of my songs. That was one of the first things I did at the first rehearsal. I, I, I bought a song that I'd written a couple of years ago, probably the first proper song I'd written. And one that was kind of influenced by the Lemonheads. And I took that to them bit nervous, obviously, because you think, oh, God. Um, But the lads seemed to like it and we worked on it. And then, you know, I I kept writing at home and uh, I just kept bringing the songs. And that's kind of how it it went. It was kind of, I'd bring the song to rehearsal and, um, you know, they'd flesh out their parts and it would go from there.
0: So where did the name come from? Was it entirely just dropped it was, on you that day on the you know, yeah yeah
1: the literally yeah. I, i'd never even heard i didn't know what he was on about i thought he'd sent the send it to the wrong person <laughs> but um basically combined i was writing blogs on myspace again because you know writing down the top four he wasn't sad enough i had to also write blogs online um and uh, our drummer had a mono bro, and still has one i think <laughs> i presume he does and so Dan just combined these and the Monobloggers was born.
0: So what did you think when it, when obviously when you were sort of in the rehearsal stage and you were bringing, um, bringing the songs through, what, what lifespan did you, did you envisage at that point? Well,
1: obviously I was really young, so you don't, I didn't really put any particular lifespan on it really. For me, there wasn't going to be an expiration date for me. you, you, I was obviously a bit naive, a bit starry-eyed. And you think, wow, this could be, it. you know, this could be my band now, from now till the end. You don't, I didn't really envision it coming to an end, really. I kind of hoped it would continue to grow and grow and grow for years and end. Um, and I hoped that we'd be able to create a bit of a body of work. Um, so, yeah, I think because I, again, because I was 17, 18 it's kind of like when you with your first love, I suppose you kind of think, "Oh, we're going to be together forever" and all this stuff, you know.
0: Yeah. So, then what what did what did change then? So, what brought you out? What what brought about the end for
1: them? Weirdly, it was a, a a record deal. I would say was the was the main was the main thing. And I remember I used to read up about bands that would split up because of dodgy record labels and things, and I used to think, "Oh, well, that can't be the main reason because surely if you love it enough." you'd be able to overcome those kind of um, pitfalls but um yeah that was kind of what did it for us basically we we were on a record label um and it again it kind of plays into our naivety with it really I was kind of the band manager and at the time I thought I was doing an okay job I thought I I was quite organized and I, I, I did some good stuff and I think I did to an extent but I was still only seventeen, eighteen—not you know nineteen—by the time we kind of come to an end. Probably a little bit older, actually. So I was didn't have much world experience, and there's a lot of things I look back on now that I wish I hadn't had done or would do differently. And I think one of these things was this record deal that we got offered, and this guy was signing up a few different local bands, and he seemed really interested and. He wasn't promising anything crazy. It was all realistic promises. So it was stuff like maybe some dates outside of the UK, which we needed a bit of help with, uh, some merchandise which he'd never had, and also helping to fund another EP because we'd released two EPs at this point and we wanted to do a third. So it was all realistic stuff. It wasn't crazy. Um, so it didn't seem you know, that fantastical to us. So we were kind of happy to sign on the dotted line. Um, one of the stipulations was that they'd earn 30% of whatever we made. But this was regardless of whether or not they had any involvement in it. So we could put on a gig ourselves and they'd still take a cut of it. Mm. But it didn't seem that bad in the grand scheme of things, considering what they were going to offer us. So we signed the deal and then we were on a six month contract. But after a, a month or so, we just heard nothing from the label. They, they were nowhere to be seen or heard. Uh, they didn't put us on there their roster, the promises that they made never came to fruition. I mean, I remember one, there was a difficult day when we had a studio session booked and we were recording a song and the record label had previously said, well, we'll foot the bill for it then, because it was already booked anyway, but they, they said they'd, they'd pay for it. And obviously, again, it just plays into the, my naivety at the time that I thought, okay, great. So we went to this session, played the song, and the, the, we couldn't reach the label um so i i had to pay in the end um which i wasn't expecting um so i kind of paid for it literally and 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 figuratively i suppose um but anyway we cottoned on to the fact that they'd make a cut of whatever we did even if they had not spearheaded it or got involved in any way so we stopped gigging um because we didn't want them to make any money and we weren't Recording anything, we weren't releasing anything. There was nothing on the horizon, so we we were kind of a listlessness setting, yeah. and I think we were starting to get a bit frustrated with each other. We kind of felt the band name had been besmirched a bit because there'd been a few cancelled gigs as well, and I kind of we kind of felt the reputation wasn't as strong as it was. And but after the six months were over and we were free of the label, we did a gig and not the re, the the turnout wasn't great we just kind of felt we just kind of felt fatigued really and I think we were already just for a fresh start at that point but we were young you know what I mean like I look back on it now and obviously at the time you don't really think about it do you, you know you don't you don't sit there saying I'm, I'm I'm still a young man you know what I mean But well, I look back on it now and I think well you know we were so young and we were naive and, but we had a great time, you know, we all loved it. And the good thing is we're all still kind of, you know, we were in touch with each other and stuff. So there was never any animosity. There was times when we had disagreements and we would fall out, of course, but I, I do look back on it fondly. But I think if there's one thing I'd change, I wish we'd have had like a manager or someone older involved. I know Cheese's dad was kind of keen to do it. I think, and I wish we'd have pursued that a little bit, because I think we'd have had like an older head just kind of, steering us in the right direction we, we could have done a lot more but i think because we were just four young lads kind of working it out for ourselves we we didn't always make the right decisions
0: well i it's, think it's like you say though it's difficult not to be tempted by something like that when it it's you know they're not promising you the earth it's quite a reasonable fathomable you know transaction and obviously what ended up happening was that i suppose any of the momentum that you'd built up if you don't gig for six months it's going to tear that apart isn't it and you're going to have to sort of start from scratch
1: aren't you yeah I mean six months is like forever isn't it in the unsigned yeah. world if you don't do anything for that long you do get forgotten about um, but I mean it's it's one of them I mean it wasn't just that really there was, there was other reasons it's one of those where you know you you look back and think if I know what I know now and I had the tools and the knowledge I have now it would it probably would have been a bit smoother
0: so what was the next chapter then what happened after that A lot of people
1: thought I would go straight back into making music and a lot of people thought I would go solo then. Um, I guess they thought we were like a boy band, you know, we'd split up so we were all going to have solo careers. Um, And again, I was tempted. I remember I bought some home recording equipment and I got in touch with a few local musicians that I knew and asked if they'd be interested in in guesting on it and I was going to kind of make a lo-fi acoustic-driven record. And in fact, my forthcoming EP... A couple of the songs that are going to be on that were written for this. So uh, this was around 2012. Um, I don't know what happened, but for one reason or another, I just never really pursued it. Um, I just kind of, I guess I lost the love of it. I lost the drive of it. Um, I think it was such an intense period and it was kind of all I really liked. You know what I mean? It was such a big part of my life from 17 to 21, 22 And I loved it so much that I think coming out of it, the thought of going back into it again, it felt a little bit overwhelming at that that point in my life. So I never really pursued doing the record. Um, But there was, and again, there was that kind of lack of confidence for me. I just thought, Sam Lambeth, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to be solo. I don't know if people would just think I was a one-man band. You know what I mean? I don't know if people would see Sam Lambeth and think, oh, no, it's going to be like a, a, you know, a kind of a, a lo-fi, miserable record with just him and his acoustic guitar. Uh, So I kind of, again, put off the idea. And there was a few abortive attempts to do a band again. And I did one early 2015. That's when I finally got one off the ground. But it didn't last very long. It it lasted a couple of months, really. And then I finally got a proper band together um, November 2015 called Quinn. And at this point, I've been frequenting Birmingham a lot more than I had before and I was going to a few club nights and a few unsigned band gigs and I'd I'd made a few friends and so by the time I decided to dip my toe back into bands again I kind of knew a lot of people I knew a lot of promoters and knew a lot of bands and stuff from just going out and seeing them and networking with them so I knew that if I formed a band I'd I'd at least have hopefully a little bit of a support network um so yeah I, I um my, uh, my mate Sam, who's a drummer, he uh, was up for doing it. And then we found this bass player called Meg um, and she joined in there and we formed Quinn and uh, we were together for just under three years. Um, it was a bit of a different sound from my first band. So the Monobloggers was a lot similar to kind of what the music I'm making now, which is kind of, you know, quite melodic, acoustic-driven rock, you know, quite REM, quite 90s-focused Quinn was a bit more reverb-y, a bit grungy, a bit of a power trio. Um, But we released two EPs, and uh, we did quite well. We had quite a lot of gigs, quite a lot of support slots. Um, We was on Radio 1 and 6 Music, which was great. Um, We donated a lot of money to charity as well. So the first EP, all the proceeds from that went to Teenage Cancer Trust. And the second EP, all the proceeds went to Mind um, not a great deal was raised, obviously, but it was still it was still nice to, to do that, to, to donate the proceeds to these charities. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was a really great experience. And it was a chance to do something a bit different. You know, it was a chance to do a hard rocking trio. You know, for me, it was hard rocking anyway. I was very influenced at that point by people like Dinosaur Junior, um, Hole, Smashing Pumpkins. Um, so it was very Kind of heavy reverb drenched rock, um, so it was a lot different from what I'd done before. It, it definitely helped me improve as a guitarist, as a frontman, as a singer, because there was a lot more emphasis on me. Because there was, you know, there wasn't another vocalist or another guitarist. And again, it was the same kind of pattern as the monobloggers, where I'd bring the songs, um, they'd flesh out their parts, or they would kind of have an idea of what the drums were going to be anyway, um, and it was kind of me driving it forward you know with booking the gigs and stuff like that
0: how, how does that how does that come about when you um so like, did, did you find it easy to to piece together the other parts of the song so obviously being sort of guitarist and and vocalist did you find it easy that in your head you're like yeah i know exactly what the drum sound is going to be or do you just kind of let them expand into it a little bit a bit of both um i didn't want to kind of be
1: like because at the end of the day it was a band you know um even even if I'd, I did a lot of the heavy lifting as it were, it was still a band, so I never wanted to make them do anything that they wouldn't want to do you know so with the drum parts, there was always room for for them to put their own stamp on it and to play what they'd want to play. But when I'd write the songs, there would I, I would have an idea in my head of how I thought the drums are going to go. I think a lot of songwriters might say that as well, you know, that when they're at home crafting a song on an acoustic guitar or a piano, what have you, in their head, they'll have an idea of, you know, when the drums are going to change, what kind of pattern is going to be happening. Um, So, yeah, it kind of goes with the song as well. I think when I'm at home playing the guitar, the dynamics of how I play kind of mirror what I want the drums to play. So if there's sudden heavy strumming i know that that can be done with the drums so yeah i do have kind of a clear idea of what i want the drums to do but i'm always happy to hear suggestions and the same with the bass as well
0: so what prompted the change in styles musically was it um were you just listening to different stuff then was it as you say was it because you got into more of the splashing pumpkins kind of vibe and you wanted to bring that through or was it like bass with the other guys as well? Yeah, again, I think it was kind of.
1: I um I've always been a real devourer of, of music, you know. I've always I've always been exploring new bands, new sounds, new new records, um, and sometimes I get really into a particular genre or style, and my songwriting mirrors that. So at that point. I was really into more kind of lo-fi, dream, pop, grunge, that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah, my songwriting kind of altered and I began creating songs like that. So, yeah, it did kind of just reflect a newfound love for that. But I, I did always want to try being in a trio. I always wanted to have a go at being kind of the only guitarist because I thought it'd be a real great challenge. And sometimes it was hard in the past when there was another guitarist because I'd I would write the songs, but I'd write them in a way that there wasn't really a second guitar. And we'd then have to kind of create bits of the second guitar. Sometimes it was easy because obviously you'd have a lead and a rhythm. But sometimes if there wasn't much room for the lead, it, it would be difficult. So it was good to have that kind of that part of the process removed because it would just be one guitar. But it was a chance to to push myself really and, and and develop as a guitar player because I hadn't really done much solo I hadn't really, I'd always had someone playing with me on stage and that kind of created, again, It was that was the idea of there's always that safety net there, you know, but when I was the only guitarist, obviously there was no hiding place. If I made a mistake, everyone would hear it, so it was a real cool challenge. So I think it was just a mixture, really, of wanting to try being in a trio and just really, really liking that music at the time. And I still like it now, you know, but um, but yeah. I kind of, it, it fluctuates, you know. Um, I remember the band I formed in between the monologues and Quinn was very much kind of into, like, punk rock, um, like, you know, Jimmy Eat World, brand new, that kind of heavier po- pop punk kind of style. Yeah. So there's just been times when I've been really into a genre and then the songwriting's reflected that, you know. Maybe it all ties in with me wanting to explore different, genres you know but instead of exploring different genres under one name every band kind of was a genre if you know what I mean
0: yeah I think I think it's easier to do that in the sense I mean obviously what you said at the beginning was that you wanted to be one of these artists that would challenge themselves and wouldn't be afraid of bringing in other genres but it ended up that the bands didn't quite carry the length for you to be able to do that would that be a fair fair way to reflect it in a way, but again, I think it was kind of my
1: own naivety as well. For me, I thought the bands represented the genre, and if I wanted to, to totally change genre and explore something new, it would mean having to have a new band and a new identity. So there's a bit of naivety there with, with me, really. I think I was kind of thinking being in a band meant sticking to a formula a bit more, particularly as we weren't a big band, you know. Um So, I don't know, maybe a a bit of both. I mean, with Quinn, it was kind of, the name could be used as a solo name as well, you know. Part of me thought about that, of carrying on under Quinn, but... But, yeah, I I think it's just a mix, really.
0: So, without being one that, like, sort of wanting to dwell on the negativity, so what what was it that sort of brought Quinn to a close? Um, Again, just... I think just frustrations
1: with it, really. And I think, you know, deep down when it's over, but you just try and fight it. And it was like that in the monobloggers where I didn't want it to end, to be honest with you. But I knew it would make sense They did come to a close, even if it was just temporary. Um, you just had that gut feeling that, you know, it's over. Um, and with Quinn, it was like that. Um, I basically, I lived in London for a brief time, but Quinn was still active and We'd would gone long distance and it was a bit more difficult to regularly rehearse, obviously, and to do regular gigs. Um, and it was hard to push forward as Quinn because I wasn't around to rehearse and I wasn't around to bring the new songs and I wasn't around to record regularly. And I just think at that point we were wanted to move in different directions, so the other members of Quinn wanted to kind of stay a bit more loyal to the sound that we had with this, you know, grunge-rocking sound. And I wanted to pursue... Um, different sounds and um, and I think that kind of caused a bit of a rift um, and um, I think basically what happened was that the members of Queen were going to leave and I was just going to carry on as Queen um, but um, in the end I, I just kind of got fed up with it I tried to find new band members and I couldn't really get it off the ground There was a lot of false dawns, you know, false promises and stuff like that. And I remember I did the gig in the September 2018, it was, in in Birmingham. And I just remember one night thinking, this is going to be the last Queen gig. And I don't know why, I just, I think I was just fed up with it. It felt a bit like an albatross around my neck, you know. Um, And I, I felt a real contentment with it, you know what I mean? So when I announced it, when I said, this is going to be the last Queen gig, I didn't feel sad or I didn't feel... I didn't feel I was making a decision based on an emotion. You know, I wasn't overreacting. I wasn't launching into it without thinking. It just felt the right decision and I felt at peace with it. I thought it's time to, to lay it to rest. And I'm glad I did. And I, I think with the, the two main bands in my life were the Monobloggers and Quinn. And when they both ended, yes, there was hopes that I would carry on and maybe go solo, you know, with Deep Inside Me. But also there was this feeling of, oh, I'm done with it now. So while I monobloggers, I didn't really do anything properly for another three years. And then when Quinn ended in late 2018, again, I didn't do anything until November last year when I, when I launched my solo career. So both times I kind of felt done with it, not in an angry way or a bitter way, just in a kind of, I felt like I'd done all I could. I had a good run, I had a good innings, and maybe it was time, maybe it was time to, to tentatively take steps into the real, in the real world, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, before we before we go on to your solo stuff, um, what, one of the things that I always like to ask people, um, especially like the local musicians um, and actually, like, what do you think of the scene? So do you feel supported by it? Is there enough venues? Are there enough places to go? I mean, obviously we'll take COVID off the table. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because that's just a whole mess. Um, but yeah. like, what do you feel is the advantages of it? Like, how does it compare, sort of, Black countryside to to more Birmingham? Like, how, how have you found it?
1: Well, I would definitely agree with what Jack said to you when you had Jack Cattell on, where he kind of said the Wolverhampton scene is pretty much moribund, and I do I would echo that, particularly in comparison to Birmingham. And it's a real shame, and it, I wish I there was something I could do about it because when I first started playing in bands, it was 2008, 2009. And the Wolverhampton scene was thriving to such an extent that for the monobloggers for many years, we didn't really go to Birmingham because we didn't need to because there was adequate venues closer and there was a nice little scene. So you'd have the little civic and that was kind of like a a rite of passage, you know, to play there. Um, there was the varsity, um, which was a great venue, even though it looked like a nuclear bunker up there. Um, there was also there was the Prince Albert, which we played many times, um, and there was another venue which I can't remember. But there was quite a lot of small venues in Wolverhampton at that time, and there was also the Wharf Ten Bar in Warsaw, which did regular gigs and had quite a loyal following. But I think ten over ten years on, it couldn't be more different. I think in Wolverhampton now. There's just no venues that are equipped to handle artists of our size in the sense that the ones around are just too big. You know, the smallest one is probably the Slade Rooms and that's a very big room, really. Um, then you've got, I think, this KK Steel Mill. And again, that's a big venue. There's the Robin 2 in Bilston, which is a great venue. But again, it's it's, it's huge, really. Um, so there's just no... there's nowhere. In Wolverhampton, that's the that is the equivalent of venues like the Sunflower Lounge, of venues like the Victoria, of Dead Wax, of Mama Roos. There's no venues like that 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 can you know that hold 150 to 200 people. And I, I think if there was, it, it would be fantastic if we could try and get something off the ground again. But obviously, not just to talk about Wolverhampton, to talk about Birmingham. It's fantastic. It's been so good to me over the past 12 years. Um, the venues are fantastic. The Sunflower Lounge is great because you don't need a huge amount of people there in order for there to be an atmosphere. Um, Dead Wax is is a great new one. Um, obviously, you've got the Victoria. Um, the Rainbow was great in Digbeth as well at the time, um, but then also you've got the Hair and Hounds in Kings Heath, which is fantastic, and also you know the the Academy Two and Three too. Um, such fantastic venues that enable us to play music um, to decent sized crowds, um, which is something that sadly we don't have in Wolverhampton of Hampton anymore. But in terms of the support, it's always been fantastic. I'm always really, really humbled by by the level of support that I get. So, in you know, in the various incarnations that I've done music in, and I, I struggle to keep track of them all, each time local bands and artists and promoters and, and bloggers They've been fantastic. I, I honestly really really appreciate the support that they give. There's a always been a real, um, real spirit and a real kind of camaraderie with, with, with local musicians, which is fantastic to see. I mean, I I came back on, I hate I, you know, I came back onto the scene as it were in November, um, and no one knew me from Adam really, you know, because my my old bands weren't that big, so people wouldn't really have remembered them. Um, and just in that short amount of time, I've been able to form really, really nice little relationships with, with local bands who have been great. You know, they've kind of took me in, as it were, um, and supported me. And that, that's been really, really nice to see. But not just locally, I mean, nationally as well. I think the great thing with social media is has been that I've been able, able to, to listen to bands and artists on further afield, get to know them. And they in turn have listened to me as well, so it's been fantastic. I couldn't faulty.
0: What? Well, how do you feel about? Um, there's something that we we mentioned quite a bit that Birmingham is starting to. It's almost like it's being overlooked. So you look at the big touring bands. Um, you'll You'll notice now that they're ended up, ended up having gigs, and it's like London, Manchester, one in Scotland, <laughs> and then they disappear. Like, right. do you feel like we're being missed out for any particular reason? Is it? Venue, it is frust- perhaps, or is it, what you know, what's the issue? What, They're just not like the accent or something?
1: <laughs> it is frustrating, and it's, it's, def- it's something I definitely agree with, and I've noticed, for sure. I mean, one particular frustrating thing I think is, and no offence to Nottingham, by the way, is that I kind of feel a lot of bands will randomly play, like you say, London and Manchester, but then also play Nottingham, or they'll do a, a tour across the country, but they won't touch the Midlands, the West Midlands, but they'll play Nottingham it's almost as if the nottingham date serves as the whole of the midlands. So that can be frustrating. Um but I, I, I don't I don't really understand why to be honest. I'm not sure why. I have definitely noticed that it's become more and more common that fans will will miss out brom. Um but I'm not sure why. Um I wish I knew. Um whether it's venue capacity or or availability I'm not sure. It is definitely a shame. For sure, because I think Birmingham is such a great, diverse, entertaining city with so many different music venues. It's a real shame to leave it out because it's uh, for me, it's a city that's got all the majesty and diversity of London with, with, without the uh, the crazy prices.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've. I think there's, you know, to, to argue that well, we've got a, a twenty thousand seat venue in this area of the country, so we don't need to get another one in Birmingham, kind of misses the point, I feel. but Because um, obviously, I mean, how was it when, what was your first gig and how did that affect your ability to then go, yeah, I really want to do this? Like, how important was that for your journey?
1: Yeah, very. My first gig was V Festival 2004. And obviously then I, I really, really wanted to play a Festival just because... <laughs> the atmosphere and the craziness of it and to, play, to be able to play outside you know um that was great um, my first indoor gig was Franz Ferdinand at Wolverhampton Civic Hall a fantastic venue which sadly shows no sign of returning I heard something that they built it wrong or something that they were redeveloping it and then they have realized halfway through that they couldn't keep building on the structure that they had or something so god knows when that will come back but yeah that was my first indoor gig. And it was it, yeah, it was a fantastic experience, and I think it's always a it's always a learning experience as well. You're almost on call if you know what I mean. You're you're on the job when you go and watch a gig. You still enjoy it, obviously, but there's certain things that bands will do that you'll that you'll learn from, both good and bad. And I think every gig I've gone to, I've come away and thought, oh, that's something perhaps I could look into doing. I mean, I remember. One band I went to watch, and I wasn't a huge fan of them at the time. I, it was kind of a job I went to review them. It was Goo Goo Dolls. I didn't really know many of their songs, really. I, I knew they had more than Iris, but I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan. But they were fantastic. Um, they were a fantastic live band, and they got the balance perfect for me. And I, I think it's a difficult formula to get right, because as an audience, you want to kind of hear the songs as they are on the record, but you don't want to hear them identically you know what I mean? You don't want it to be like they've just put the CD on, load. Mm-hmm. You, you you want certain nuances, certain changes, subtle differences from the record that make it feel live and authentic and unique. And also you don't want it to be that it's just record, just music. For me personally, anyway, when a band just plays music and doesn't really, you know, interact with the crowd, I kind of feel it creates a bit of a barrier. Uh, but also you don't want them to talk too much because it, yeah. it can take away from the music. So for me, it's a real, it's a tough formula to get right. But when I watch Goo Goo Dolls, of all the bands I've seen, you know, and all the artists I've seen, I never thought I'd say Goo Goo Dolls were one of the best at it, but they, they, they really were. They they got the balance perfect. They they kept the audience involved throughout. You could tell the banter in between was, was unique and was off the cuff. It wasn't just stuff he said every night. Um, but they played, and they played really well. But there was, it felt like an authentic experience because it wasn't just note for note perfect.
0: I think that's the difference, isn't it? I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that because <laughs> I I ended up seeing the Goo Goo Dolls at V Festival in I think two thousand and oh, okay. seven, and it was an unenviable slot. I think they were on the second second slot on the first day, so hardly anybody's got up yet. Basically, this. Yeah. <laughs> nobody's in there and they were like, you can clearly tell that they'd done this a lot. You know, they were very seasoned at it, but like you say, they got this sort of balance where they were clearly enjoying themselves. They were just having a laugh with the people that were there. Um, and I think it's a big distinction when you notice that you can get somebody who absolutely loves a band to pieces until they go and see them live. And it's an entirely different sort of, you know, experience and it gives you a better insight into what the band actually is versus what, you know, what you've heard on the records.
1: For sure, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there can be sometimes when a record disappoints you, but then when you hear it live and they, they coax new sounds out of it and new structures, it can totally change it. I remember I saw, um, I've seen Gomez a few times, and they released a record that was, it was OK, I wasn't blown away by it. But then when I saw them live a few weeks later, those songs live sounded so much better and more alive and more purposeful. Than they did on the record. Maybe they, they just couldn't capture the the magic. You know, and I know REM, there was a similar thing with REM as well, when they released they released the record around the sun, and it was a it was a poor record, and they, they openly admit to hating it. But then they toured the year after and they played songs from it and they sounded so much better than on the record.
0: So how do you feel that works for you? So did you did you get that vibe when you were performing live um did, did you find you, you could bring more to it did it feel more natural it took a while
1: definitely um when I first started i um this will surprise you considering I've cracked no jokes but when I was younger I wanted to be a comedian that was my ambition believe it or not um so when I first started in the band I still wanted to be a comedian really as well and I think I was spending too much time cracking jokes on stage and trying to be funny than I was being serious about it. And I remember I wrote our band's biography on MySpace and it was just full of self-deprecating remarks and stuff because I just thought that was the way, I didn't really know that it wasn't the way to do it. And I suppose it's, it's not not the way, but I was just kind of cracking jokes at our expense and stuff. And I remember we did a gig and this guy said, it's all jokes. He said, you know, like we read your biography and stuff on MySpace. It's just all like, piss takes you know not out of people just out of like yourselves It's like you've got to get serious with it yeah you know, he wasn't angry or anything but it, it it definitely hit home to me that I had to take it seriously not so serious that it was you know that it was just humorless but but definitely treat it with the respect it deserved I think it, it was coming across a bit disrespectful maybe um so yeah I learned that quick but I think it took a while It took a long time for me to get to where I want to be as a live performer definitely I think vocally I was never really up to scratch whereas now I only feel in the last kind of year I've found my my voice as it were you know I think before then I was trying too hard to emulate my songwriting you know my, my heroes trying too hard to sing in registers that weren't a natural fit you know trying to force something that just wasn't right Um, I think Setup wise, I wasn't quite at it. I didn't have the very best equipment. I mean, for years I played on stage without a tuning pedal. I mean, to me in there, that just seems crazy. That just seems to me like you know going into a a fighter jet without a helmet. Really, I don't know what I was thinking, but back then I didn't have, didn't even have a tuning pedal, and yeah, I just didn't you know. I think equipment wise, performance wise, I wasn't quite up, up to the standards that I needed to be. But also in terms of uh, as being a front man, I don't think I was quite at it in terms of interacting with the audience. Um, I think I was quite nervous. Um, I don't think I got the balance as well as I wanted in terms of interacting with the audience and also playing the songs. Um, and it, it is really difficult. It, it is difficult to be to go on there and, and you know look into the crowd and start talking and without. Without rambling or without repeating yourself or or murmuring, it is really tough. Um, it's only in the past. I think towards the end of Queen, I got a lot more. I built up my confidence a lot, and I became more of a more of a performer, if you will. And we got some really good reviews about it, saying that there was a lot of charisma on stage and a lot of energy. And um, yeah, I think I just learned to kind of relax a bit more. I always enjoyed performing live, but I think. Once I got onto the stage, it was kind of like, I don't know if it was nerves setting in you know, or just not being able to think on my feet in terms of what to say, um, concentrating too much on the music maybe. Obviously, you've got to concentrate on that. But, but yeah, um, it took a while, definitely. I think um, the last few gigs I did before lockdown were some of the best I did, definitely, and that was because just going through those times, learning from, from the past – and like I say, finding a, finding the vocal, delivery through, that was comfortable to me, getting better equipment um, practising a lot more. Um, yeah, just kind of life lessons, really. And, and, and like I said earlier, just learning from when I go and watch bands and musicians and learning what they do and little tricks that they do that I can apply to, to my performances.
0: Well, I mean, for, for what it's worth in me saying it, you definitely sound a lot more assured on your more recent stuff, on the solo stuff. Um, Thank you. And I was going to say, does it, do you feel like it's just the sum total of your experiences now or is it a balance of that kind of releasing the rest of the, the inhibitions? Because obviously now that you're solo, if you want to make changes, you can do it much more easily. You can go the way that you want to go. Does that sort of sense of freedom help?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I always had a lot of freedom. To be fair, in my previous bands, because I was kind of the one writing the songs, I was booking the gigs. I was always kind of the creative force behind them, if you know what I mean. Which is probably why they didn't work out. But um, I, um, I was always reluctant to do too much. I didn't want to become a dictator, you know, and I didn't want to make any of the guys do anything they didn't want to do. So there was always that democracy there as well. Um, so there was a free- there was freedom, but there were still barriers in place. And I I don't mean barriers in a horrible way. I just mean, obviously you'd have to get it through democracy for for us to do it. Whereas now it is a lot more liberating just to think if I want to do that, I can do it. And I haven't got to, I haven't got to worry about upsetting anyone or or hurting anyone's feelings or anything like that. So that's, that's really good. Um, I think in terms of singing, it's just more, yeah, I guess being at peace with myself because When I went into the recording studio last August, I still wasn't 100% of what my actual singing voice was like, you know, because I just don't think I ever found the right balance, the right key, the right register, the right tone. It changed, it fluctuated. Sometimes I try and sing high, sometimes low. Just never settled on a distinctive voice. I remember as as daft as it sounds, I went into the studio and I said to myself, just open your mouth and sing. Don't think about it don't go in thinking, well, I want this song to sound like this band or I want to sound like this singer. Just go in and open your mouth and sing, and then whatever comes out is obviously just going to be natural to you. And um, that's kind of what happened, really. And I, I am a lot more at peace of it now. You know, when I'm playing at home and working on songs and doing covers, I do kind of feel I've finally found, found a voice that, that, that works for me, you know.
0: So, um, I mean, I'm going to pick it out because there was, there was obviously when I do little bits of research and stuff like that. Um, So would you describe yourself still as sort of Wolverhampton's Taylor Swift? In, <laughs> or are, we, are, are, we, are you moving away now? Are you getting the chance to move away from the love songs and stuff? Or does it feel like you get naturally drawn back to them?
1: I'm definitely going to try and move away from them. I mean, for me, the new EP, the songs on there, And the songs that have been released so far, they're not strictly love songs to me, but I can understand why people would think they are. Um, They're rarely personal as well, because to be honest with you, I haven't had much experience of love, so I can't really write that extensively about it. But um, I can see why people would think they're love songs still. Um, And in the past year, I definitely did consciously write songs about being dumped or relationships not working out or whatever. It was kind of my go-to way of writing. But I think that ties in again just to me being young. I'm not saying every young person writes about love, but I think now I'm a bit older. There are different areas that I want to write about and, and different things that are more prevalent and and precious to me that I would like to talk about. Um but yeah, I think this for me I've I've definitely started to move away from it. And I think this new EP does move away from it quite a lot. It it still talks about real concerns time, friendship, religion, death. Um, I know I'm making it sound sound a bit miserable, but uh, those are kind of the, the big themes that I wanted to look at when I was writing the record. But yeah, there was definitely a conscious decision to move away from She Dumped Me, She Didn't Return My Texts, you know. And a song like The King, You and Me, I could see why people would think it was a love song. And for me, if people want to think it's a love song, that's great because I love it when people listen to a song and they project their own history and emotions onto it i think that's that's one of the big rewards when you're a songwriter when people do that um so sometimes i don't like to talk about the specificity i can't get that word out you know what i mean yeah sometimes i don't like to go into too much detail about the lyrics because i, I don't, don't want to spoil it for anyone um but yeah um for me the new songs are more about time friendship that kind of thing so even the songs that people might think i love songs are not actually love songs in the in the relationship sense but yeah, in the past, it was definitely something that I did a lot, wrote love songs, and I definitely made a lot of jokes, but being Wolverhampton's Taylor Swift, and the irony is, this is probably the the most Swift-like I've ever sounded, I would say, um, particularly her uh, more country albums like Red, whereas before I didn't really sound like Taylor Swift, I guess I just had the wrote about love like she did but yeah i definitely want to expand my horizons and in the future when i when i do the next record i've already started writing lyrics here and there for it i'm not really forcing it yet because there's, there's plenty of time but when inspiration strikes you know it, it's a lot different now i'm writing about different things and that's part of the joy of being a songwriter isn't it? It, it it's about challenging yourself and and uh not just writing about the same thing over and over it's about Dis- discussing issues that are, are relevant and, and other things like that
0: one so, um, where So I, I mean we, we've kind of touched on it briefly but tried to avoid it as much as I can really but how has Covid and the lockdown helped with the songwriting have you found you've got plenty of time and space to do it or has it been a different sort of pressure um,
1: sorry I'm just grabbing my charger <laughs> bear me one second uh, basic, uh, basically, uh, I had loads of meetings this afternoon and then 10 minutes before uh, you called me, uh, my uh, my boss rang me and I wasn't expecting it. Um, so it kind of, you know, it just froze you for a loop.
0: Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs>
1: so I kind of, uh, all of a sudden I had everything ready and then... Yeah. That kind of knocked everything out. So, anyway, sorry, I'm back now.
0: Okay, right, so I'm I'm, prob- I'll, I'll, I'll I ask am- for you. Um, so, yeah, so with with obviously COVID and the lockdown, um, have you found that it's given you loads of free time to write, or has the sort of the amount of time that you've had with sort of being isolated or whatever has that given you this sort of pressure that, well, God, I really have to have something written over this period, otherwise, I've wasted the whole time. It's a bit of both, actually. Selfishly this period has been great for
1: me. And I hate to say that because of how bad it's been. Um, But the truth is I probably wouldn't be speaking to you now if lockdown hadn't have happened because I was fairly content in retirement. I was still writing because ideas were still coming to me and I was still playing regularly. But I didn't really harbour any real ambitions to get back into it. And certainly not as soon as I have. I was going to do it really gradually I remember just before lockdown happened maybe in last February I'd written a couple of songs that I was happy with and I felt there was some cohesion there and I remember saying um oh maybe I'll do another record in the future you know over a period of months or something but it was certainly wasn't high on my agenda and um going back out and kind of doing this regularly wasn't I didn't really consider it that heavily uh, back then. But then when lockdown happened, yeah, all of a sudden they had all this free time. And I think the great thing was about it was the fact that I didn't have any ties. I, I do really feel for bands and musicians that were in the middle of you we making a record or in the middle of gigging or in the middle of something, you know, anything, because it would have been such a... A blow to them to have to stop whereas for me i had already stopped so there was the only thing for me to do was to start again so it was a, the situation was a lot different for me um and it was really great for me because i'd written these songs and some of them were old so like i mentioned earlier there was a couple of songs that were going to be on what would have been my first solo record in 2012 so a long time ago and there was a few new ones as well that I'd written. But because there was no rush and there was no band, there was no rehearsals book, there was no gigs on the horizon, there was just no um, kind of time frame that I had to work towards, I could just take my time with it and just work on them as and when, which was great. It really helped because I, I bought a mandolin, I bought a harmonica, I bought a keyboard, and... Um, I started to flesh out these songs, which I'd never done before, because I'd always been in bands. We tended to stick to the formula of guitar bass, drums. We didn't really explore that much, mainly because we didn't want to... We wanted to try and replicate it live as best as we could. Um, But for me, there was no rules, because I didn't ever think I'd gig again, and I wasn't sure if I'd even record these songs. So I just thought I'd have fun with it, and it was a chance to learn something new. So I hadn't really played harmonica or mandolin before, but I kind of had a sense of where I wanted the songs to go. I kind of wanted them to be a bit more expansive than before. I wanted them to, to I wanted to move away from relying on the guitar all the time because I kind of thought I'd done that to death. You know, I'd, I'd done the guitar solos, the electric guitar, acoustic guitar overdubs to death. I wanted to move away from that a bit. Um, and te- again, just test myself. So I bought these instruments, started learning them um, to a fairly rudimentary degree, has to be said, but, but probably passable enough. Um, so I started to flesh these songs out, tinker with the lyrics, which again, which is something I didn't really do in the past. I was very much a kind of, the song's written, that's it, I'm done with it, you know, emotionally I'm, I'm done with the song now. Whereas this time I'd, I'd return to it a lot and rewrite it and tweet words, which I never really did before. Um, and that really, really benefited me, I think, having that time to work on these songs because by the time i felt ready to go into the studio. I was really confident in the songs and I knew what overdubs I wanted. I knew what solos, what parts were gonna be on it, and stuff like that. um so yeah, it was a fantastic time for me, and all that free time, I very much played into into writing music, um which i didn't I didn't really have that time before, and even if I did, I wasn't really devoting it to music. Um, so it kind of rekindled my love of songwriting and my love of performing, I would say. And I think what what helped was the fact there was no expectations upon me because I didn't have a band or anything. It was kind of nice to work like incognito, as it were, you know, it wasn't as, you know, like I say, again, I did really feel for bands and musicians that that had social media presences and things like that and I bet you they were probably at a loose end at some points thinking well what can we post we need need to put stuff out there still to keep our fan base engaged for me obviously I didn't have that problem because I didn't have a fan base or any social media or anything so I could just work away Um, and yeah like I say financially as well I was lucky because obviously recording an EP costs a lot of money Um, and when you're doing it on your own so you're not paying, you haven't got band members to pay as well. There was that to consider too, but obviously lockdown lot down in there but me to save a bit of money and um, I sold a lot of products on eBay as well. So I sold a lot of clothes on eBay. I sold, a, a two guitars I sold on eBay. In fact, when I went to the studio, I didn't even have an electric guitar anymore because I'd sold it to fund the recording, I, ironically. Luckily they had one there. Mm-hmm. Um, sold, Fewer bits and bobs. I worked with my friend on a building site for a few shifts, just earned a little bit of money there and kind of got the money together that way. And before I knew it, I had my my EP money and went into the studio and recorded it in the August. So yeah, I would say, like I say, yeah, it was such a productive time for me and I feel bad saying it in a way because it's been such a, a real tough time for other people. But I think the fact that it worked It was a tough time. Empowered me to do it. Do you know what I mean? I think it made me realise that it's gonna it it probably will never happen again in my lifetime where we'll be given this the the, this time again, you know, where we're in lockdown, we can't go out, we can't spend money, we can't leave our houses. We might not be ever given this time again and I don't wanna look back and 10 years time and think all i did was sit on the sofa and you know watch netflix or or stuff like that which i have done to be honest but you know i I wanted to think
0: isn't it that's yeah i think everybody's had to you know as much as it's not i think it's nice and it's i get i get the guilty i get the guilty feeling that when you you think that other people might have had a lot more struggle and you've kind of made the most of it but i think i think we need those positive stories um so that people can, even if, you know, there's going to be that level of envy or somebody's like, oh, for God's sake, okay, fine. Make me feel it. <laughs> but like, I think, I think we need that sense of positivity that we can, we can get something out of um, sort of being reduced to just, you know, me, myself and I just, uh, just us on our own kind of thing. And you can get something out of that. Um, so what's the next step then? What, 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 what do you want to do now? What, what do you want from music now? Where, where are you at? For me, It's now just about
1: leaving behind, as morbid as it sounds, it's about leaving behind a body of work and a body of work that I'm going to be proud of. Um, It's very much the beginning for me now, but not in the sense of a kind of arrogant way, you know, not in the kind of sense of this is just the beginning, you know, I'm going to be massive. For me, it feels like the beginning in the sense that hopefully it will be a long and, and fulfilling journey as a solo musician. And again, one that I wish I'd done a lot sooner, but maybe it all happened for the right reasons because I think if I had started this solo career a few years ago, I wouldn't have had the knowledge of how to market my music, how to network with people. And I wouldn't have been as as you know content a performer as I am now. You know, I'm very much happy with myself and how I sing and how I play guitar. Now I've I kind of settled into a a style that fits me. I don't think I would have had that a few years ago. So I think it's, it's happened at the right time I would say, but for me, it's, it's the beginning. I, I really want to, there's there's no, again, it's, it feels like when I filmed my, well, when the monoblog was formed where the, I don't see an end and I don't see a point where I'll sign off and be happy for me, it's now going to be a really hopefully fun and exciting pursuit and, regular releases i hope for me in the short term the 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 debut ep it's kind of a mini album i suppose because there's seven tracks on it so it's a long ep mini album what have you and that's coming out at the beginning of may and hopefully people will like that and hopefully after that with uh, the restrictions hopefully easing i just plan to do as many gigs as i can both solo acoustically and with a live band and um get the music out there as best as I can and then also look to the future. And like I say, I've, I've started writing some songs, but I'm not forcing it because that's one thing I've done in the past where I've straight away moved on to the next thing and it was too soon. You know, I'd lose the love of the songs that were released because I was too busy thinking about the next stage. So I'm going to enjoy this EP and I'm going to enjoy playing the songs from it live. But I've, like I say, I've started writing tentatively for the next record and again it will definitely be uh, um, a chance to pursue different sounds it's kind of a with this first solo EP it's, uh, it's a chance to hit the reset button for me and to show people the the styles and the sounds that I, I hold dear so it's quite an acoustic driven record quite folky quite there's rocky moments there's country moments it kind of encompasses all the influences that I love, people like like I've mentioned um in the past, but also people like Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan. I think for me it represents everything I love about music and why I, why I got into it, which was always melody that was always what I loved, catchiness and melodies that's what I was always all all about so you know I was very much like a Paul McCartney fan from the Beatles and that's what attracts me to a song, melody. So for me, it's a really melodic record. And I, hopefully people will agree when they when they hear it. And it's very tuneful, very mature. And it's a record I always wanted to make. And for me, it's a great way to kind of reset, um, move on from the past and start a new exciting journey as a solo musician. And hopefully, like I say, the reward of rewards for me will be to just you know to develop a body of work and in the future look back on on hopefully a varied and diverse discography that's my aim anyway
0: <laughs> and maybe maybe at some point in the future uh there'll be some kid in their bedroom writing down the top 40 and they'll write your name down as well maybe that <laughs>
1: <thing>. <laughs> yeah that, that that's when the news report comes on it's about uh i don't know a crime spree in Wolverhampton or something <laughs> yes um yeah. oh it would it, it, be fantastic wouldn't it um it's a shame that the top forty doesn't have the same resonance it did in my day.
0: Um, it is a weird thing to—I mean, I, I, I was I saying
1: sorry. I just I, I sounded really old, and I said that didn't I? In my day, I, I'm going to say in my day, I'm talking like the late nineties, early two thousands.
0: <laughs> but thing, it, it is a hugely different world musically now compared to what it was. Um, like I was interviewing Mike Miley, who's the drummer from uh, Rival Sons yesterday. Um, obviously, he's he's a little bit older, but. Um, Obviously we you know, we were talking about how much the music industry's changed and how, you know, it's not so much about getting on a major label anymore. You can pretty much, you know, everything's sort of self-made, self-funded. Um, I mean, how do you how do you find, like you say, like you've had you've had to graft to go out there and, and get the money together for an EP? Um, and are, are you now gonna start having to do the work on the social media side of things? Obviously, you said that Jimmy Lockdown, you had that freedom of not having to Get involved with it, but how about now? Are you gonna to have to stop building that up again?
1: Yeah, i thought already kind of made inroads to do that. Um, so I set up, I was reluctant to go back to it really because I was so happy off it and I really enjoyed not being on social media. But it's you get out what you put in, don't you? And if, um, if you wanted it, if you wanted it to be a positive experience, then. It's up to you to make it a positive experience, I think. So I set up the social media pages again. Um, sorry. I set up the social media pages again um, when I relaunched my career, as it were, which was kind of autumn last year. And um, for me, it's been a wake-up call. To, you know, And it's told me that in the past when I didn't succeed with bands, it was really kind of my own fault. Because I just don't think I put enough effort in because I feel like now at this moment in time, I do put the effort in. So I engage a lot with with people. It's just obvious things really that I, I just didn't do enough of in the past. So when I, when I set up the social media accounts, I said to myself, well, I can't really set these pages up and then expect, you know, don't, I can't expect people just to listen. Because again, people aren't going to know me. So I can't just randomly message a musician or a band and go hi can you listen to my music because they're not going to know who I am you know why should they listen to me because they, they wouldn't even know who I was so for me it was all about don't expect people to listen you know you've got to, it was all about making sure I put the effort in and showed I was a team player showed I, was, I actually cared and listened to their stuff so for me it's been it's been about exploring you know other bands listening to their music getting involved with conversations listening to radio um stations listening to podcasts and you know showing my support and then to me that's kind of it was all about just doing that and making sure that people knew I wasn't just gonna pest them to listen to my music I was actually interested in, in what they had to say as well and that's that served me well so far, because I think hopefully people have seen that. You know, I am interested in hearing their music. I am always happy to help with whatever they need. And it's a great feeling for me as well, because I, I do feel really good about it. And I feel like I've been able to discover a lot of really good, talented people just from putting that effort in and just from engaging with people.
0: And so in um, the dog-eat-dog world, you can still find that sort of sense of community.
1: Yeah, for me, I'm not. I'm not really interested in the the dog eat dog side. you know what I mean? Like, um, I think there's enough room for everyone. I don't think it should ever be a competition. I don't think it should ever be, you know, one band is better than the other. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a creative, fo- it's a creative process and a creative form. So it shouldn't, it shouldn't be made into a competition for me. There's always going to be there's always room for people and. You know, we should celebrate each other's successes when it happens. And so that's one thing I've just tried to do, really. And it's it's been, it's like I say, it's been really, really good um to get to know people and to listen to their music and to listen to podcasts and blogs. Like I say, I, I discovered this podcast a few weeks ago and I've really enjoyed it and I'm glad I took the time to listen to it. And I'm really, really humbled to be on it. But it's never been, but also the key thing, I guess, as well, I should say, I, is not to do it because you expect to get anything back so for me I listen to people's music I engage with them I retweet you know I have conversation with them but I don't do it because I think well now I've done this they've got to listen to my music do you know what I mean I just do it just to just to be supportive you know and and hope that you know you get a bit of good karma along the way and it, 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 like I say, so far I've I've been really really lucky with it, and I've really enjoyed being on social media for this way more than I've ever done. I think in the past few months I've I've I've, in, I've enjoyed it way much more than I did with my other bands. Maybe because I'm a bit older again and a bit more mature, and I don't take things the wrong way anymore, and I don't get too upset if things don't have as much success or traction. Um. But yeah it's its it's I've had a lot of fun with it and i've I've got to know some really cool people um and there's there's some really nice communities out there especially on Twitter. Twitter was the one I was most nervous about actually, but it's been one of the best ones for me i've I've met some really great people and again people that are just doing really selfless things that are people that are just listening to music and retweeting about music and creating playlists just to just to help and so it's really nice to see. So, I, I you know I can honestly say at this morning, tiny I'm so happy that I decided to take the plunge and go back into making music again because so far it's been such a really fun um, experience. And like I say, I just hope it can continues.
0: So you said that obviously your um your EP is going to be coming out in May. Have you started to tentatively look at gigs yet, or are we are you just going to wait and see how the the sort of the COVID climb down goes? Again, a bit of both. I'm not not
1: looking for gigs. Um, if one gets offered my way and I can do it, I'm, I will definitely take that risk, you know, and I'll, I'll definitely say, yes, okay, well, I'll, I'm happy to do it. And then, worst case scenario, we have to move it. I have got a gig booked um, and it's Friday, 16th of July. Um, it was originally scheduled for the end of this month and it was my headline gig in Birmingham at Deadwax. so it's with a live band and originally the EP was going to be released in late March but then it got moved to early May and so I moved the EP to early May to coincide with that and then sadly last month I had to move it again to July but I'm I'm keeping the EP coming out in May because I just feel it's ready now to come out and the time will be right for it to come out at that point um But I'm really looking forward to that. It sold out in six days, which was crazy for me because when I announced it, it was kind of November last year. So we were very much in the grips of the pandemic and it it was quite a bleak time and it only looked like it was getting worse. And it took me a while to to come around to the idea of doing it. Um, Starting again on social media was one thing. uh, Releasing music under my own name was another. But doing gigs again, that was just a whole... Over kettle of fish that I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if I I wanted to do gigs again. I, again, it, it it just ties in with that confidence um, and and lack of confidence, which is something I'm trying to get better at. But it's still a struggle. I think it's just that feeling in my head of Sam Lambeth announces gig. Is anyone going to be interested? You know, would it would it sound? Does it sound appealing to people? Do you know what I mean? Like if you do a band gig and no one comes at least, you, you you don't take it that personally. But when it's your own name, would it be difficult? Would it be hard not to take it a bit more personally because it's kind of all you? Do you know what I mean? So I wrestled with those fears a little bit and those concerns. And I was pragmatic about it as well. You know, I thought, is it wise to announce a gig at this moment in time? Will people kind of be like, yeah, that's crazy. And um, So I gauged public Perception. I asked a few friends and, and work colleagues about it. I said, you know, I understand there's a lot of risks, but I'm tempted to announce this gig, and I got a lot of support from me. And they said, yeah, why not? You know, it'd be something for us to look forward to. It'd be one of the first things we'll probably be able to get to do after lockdown, and, and I think people are hungry to go to gigs again. So yeah, the reaction was really positive, and it, it sold out really quickly, which I was not expecting at all. At all. Um, so that was a fantastic experience. So I think at the end of November, my debut song had had nearly 50,000 streams and my gig had sold out in six days. So, you know, I, I was in danger of getting a bit of a swell head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and But yeah, there's some other gigs tentatively being discussed um, for like late August, September. And I've reached out to a few promoters and people I know outside of the Midlands as well to see if there's any possibility in the future of doing gigs there, because it's been such a long time since I gigged outside of the Midlands. I'd love to do a little tour again and, and gig again outside of the UK, whether that's just me or with a, with a live band again. But nothing's set in stone yet, and I'm not going to push it too much because the last thing I want to do is obviously book a, a truckload of gigs and have to move them all because it has been really stressful moving this headline gig twice because with each time it gets moved – the less likely it is that everyone can make it, you know, yeah. and that's not just the audience, that's obviously the band as well. Um, and so that, that's that been stressful, having to move that and try and find dates that work still for everybody. Um, so I don't really want to go through that again with multiple gigs. So I think I'm being pragmatic about it, you know. Um, if a gig offer comes in, I'll assess it. And if it feels right, I'll definitely jump at it. But I was, my inbox is open anyway. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, that's that's pretty much all we got. Um, unless there's anything you wanted to end on, anything else you wanted to add, then we're pretty much there.
1: No, um, just again, thanks so
0: much for having me on,
1: and uh, it's been a real fun experience again. Just to, ch- to chat about music and chat about it's been good to to look back again, actually, because it's not something I do very often. So your your questions have been really good because it's enabled me to think about you know how it all started and and the different defining moments for me. So it's been great, yeah. Thanks very much for having me on and um, I'll definitely continue to listen um, to the future ones as well and uh, I just hope I haven't rambled too much.
0: Oh, God, no, no, don't worry about that. Well, we'll um, we'll definitely have a look at, obviously, reviewing your EP when that comes out in May and then oh, thank us, we get to catch you live at some point coming up soon, whether it's like the end of summer or start of autumn or whenever it is that we end up getting back to normality.
1: Uh, but yeah, definitely. Be- yeah, I was going to say... Um, Like I say, there's there's, there's plans to do another Midlands gig as well, hopefully in in September time. So, you know, if that does come to fruition, it'd be great to
0: to see you there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be there, definitely. Well, thank you very much, mate. Thank you very much for coming on with us. Thank you. Thank you for
1: having me. Thank you very much.
0: Cheers, mate. Thank you.